using a sto- story one time about a woman who came up to her pastor and told him that she wanted to put her altar, her tongue, her not her altar, her tongue on the altar. And the pastor turned around and said to her, Madam, there isn't an altar big enough for your tongue. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry to say to you this evening, ladies, but we as women have the bigger temptation in this area with our speech. John Calvin, as you have often heard me say, said this, Talkativeness is a disease of women, and it gets worse with age. He also said there's nothing more slippery or loose than the tongue. For women, the power of self-control is often most tested in our tongues. In fact, when you think about it, the words that we speak show really what? What's in our heart. Isn't that what Jesus said? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And if I went around the room this evening and asked you all if you have ever struggled with this, every one of you, if you were being truthful with me, would say, yes, I have struggled with this area in my life. I am very thankful for friends and for a husband who keep me on track in this area. In fact, this weekend, Debbie and I, while we were in Florida, we were working on our homework, and I said, okay, let me know. Do our You know, she travels with me a lot. She knows me probably better than any of you, and I said, you know, tell me, am I guilty of any of these forms of wrong speech? And she asked me the same question, but I appreciate the accountability. Jesus tells us that we are going to give an account on Judgment Day for every idle word that we speak and that we are either going to be justified or condemned by our words. Ladies, when you think about that truth, it compels, should compel us to realize how serious it is if we have an untamed tongue. Now, we're going to look at the first 12 chapters of chapter, I mean, the first 12 verses of chapter 3. In fact, there's so much material that I decided to break it off into two lessons. And tonight, we're just going to look at verses 1 through 6. First of all, we're going to look at the inability to control our tongue in verses 1 to 4. And then secondly, we're going to look at the iniquities of our tongue, and we're going to take two weeks to cover that, and then next week we're going to focus on the inconsistency of our tongue. So if you would, let's read James 3, and we're just going to go through verse 6 this evening. James says, My brethren, be not many teachers, knowing that you will receive a stricter judgment, for in many things we all stumble. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths, that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which, oh, they are so great, and are driven by fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, wherever the pilot willeth. Even so, the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. How great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defiles the whole body, and sets on fire the course of nature, and is set on fire of hell. And we're going to stop there, and you're saying, good, I'm glad we are. Okay, first of all, notice the first two words James says, my brethren. So we know that this is not a warning to heretical teachers. James is talking to believers. My brethren, do not be many teachers. 
You might say, well, why does he start this chapter with this warning? Well, in the early Testament times, the teaching ministry was a highly esteemed ministry. In fact, the word rabbi means great one. And so to fear your rabbi or to fear your teacher would to be equated with fearing one's parents. In fact, many times a student or a disciple would obey their rabbi or their teacher over their parent. And so you can imagine with that kind of power, people were wanting the office of a teacher or of a rabbi because it meant power, it meant prestige, and it meant position. And so due to these circumstances, many were rushing into the office of teacher and they were not qualified. Also, when you think about it in the New Testament time, Paul talks about this in to the church at Corinth. New Testament times, the church services were a lot more informal than ours. You know, ours are, well, at least here, we're pretty formal. But in the New Testament times, a lot of people would just get up. Some would get up and say a psalm. Some would get up and say a hymn. Some would get up and say a, a prayer. And so under those conditions, many were conceded and were trying to take, seize the office of a teacher. Now, ladies, there's nothing new under the sun, right? Because even in our day, almost anybody will take the position of a teacher. In fact, I have seen some churches where they just, you know, put an ad in the bulletin, you know, we need a teacher, but they don't ever ask the question, is this person qualified? Can they teach? They just want a body to put in a Sunday school class. But is this a gift that God has given them? Is their life consistent with what they teach? In fact, since a teacher's work is administered primarily through the use of the tongue, then it must be controlled, right? And James is saying, my brethren, do not be many teachers. Don't rush into the office of teacher. You might say, why not? Well, notice what he says, knowing you will receive a stricter judgment. Ladies, every time I teach this, every time I read this, I want to quit teaching (laughs) because I know that on that day I am going to stand before God and I am going to be held to a stricter accountability because I am a teacher. Why? Because I'm responsible every Tuesday night when I get up here for the things that I say. I'm responsible to make sure that they're accurate. I'm responsible to make sure that they're true to this text. I'm responsible then to leave here and to go out and live it. And if I don't, I'm going to be held to a stricter accountability. Ladies, that should put the fear of God in any of you who are desiring the office of teacher. It does me. In fact, the future tense here shall receive indicates what? That time when we all stand before God and give an account. And the word stricter judgment implies the degree of treatment at the judgment seat. That's scary. Ladies, those who undertake the office of a teacher will be held strictly accountable for the way they use their position. I was thinking about this in light of the false teachers in our day. That's going to be a scary time for them because of the way that they have perverted God's word and also the way they have not lived it out. You might say, well, why? When you think about it, every Tuesday night when you come, The things that you hear or every Sunday morning when you go to church to worship and you hear your pastor, 
The words that we speak are intended to what? Direct your life on how you go out here and, and live tonight or the next day. And what if I'm up here giving a bunch of stuff that's not right? And you go out and make changes in your life that have nothing to do with this book. I'm going to be held accountable for that. It's also a disgrace to Christ and a sacrilege to God's name to be a teacher who is not prepared. In fact, I know many people, I hear them kind of joking about it, that they kind of haphazardly prepare their Sunday school class on Saturday night while they're watching television. Ladies, they are going to be held to a stricter judgment. Jesus said it very well, for to whom much is given, much is required. In fact, it's reported that when the Scottish reformer John Knox was called to preach, he shed many tears and withdrew to the privacy of his room. It said he was grieved and greatly troubled at the prospect of such an awesome responsibility. Why? He knew that God was going to hold him accountable for what he got up and preached. In fact, John Calvin once said this, it would have been better for him to fall and break his neck while climbing to the pulpit than to preach the truth without first applying it to his own life. Now, ladies, if anyone is ever offended by my teaching, I pray it's like what happened to us this weekend. <laughs> I pray it's because of the convicting power of this book and not because of something I've said offhandedly or because they've seen me not live out what I teach. And by the way, I'm giving you permission. If you ever see me not live out what I teach, I want you to come to me in meekness, gentleness. <laughs> least you be, you know, least you be. Take heed lest you fall. Now, just in case you think, well, this verse only applies to teachers. Sorry, you're not off the hook. Notice what he says in verse 2. For in many things we all stumble. Ladies, everyone in this room has one time or another said something that did not bring glory to God, right? We all stumble. It's a universal fact. In fact, the stumble here is a moral lapse, and it portrays the picture of a foot that strikes against an object that causes you to what? Fall down. But then after a while, hopefully you pick yourself up and keep on going. In fact, the present tense here in the Greek indicates that such experiences in life happen repeatedly, right? Ladies, don't look at me like that. Just think about today. Did you stumble with your mouth today? Did you say something you shouldn't have said today? Did you say something to your husband? Did you say something to your employer? Did you say something to your child? Did you... You did. All of you did. Said something today you shouldn't have said. In many things, we all what? Stumble. And James is including himself. I find that kind of encouraging. He then goes on to say, if anyone does not stumble in his words, he's what? Perfect. Perfect. And able to bridle the whole body. Now you might say, well, why does James begin this discourse with the tongue anyway? Why doesn't he say, if any man doesn't offend with his hands, or if any man doesn't offend with his feet, or if any man doesn't offend with his eyes, he's perfect. Why does he start with our mouth? Because of what Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the what? Not the hands, the, hands, the what? The mouth speaks. And ladies, when you think about it, your mouth is apt to, to go places that your hands and feet would never take you, right? I have heard the most filthiest things come out of people's mouths. 
your mouth will take you places that nobody, no other part of your body will ever take you. They might say, well, what are some ways in which we offend? Since we're going to be talking about our speech, I put some of those in your homework, but I want to give you some of the ways that we offend with our mouth. Gossip. Next week, I'm going to define some of these. Gossip, flattery, lying. In fact, yesterday, I was having lunch with Charlotte. I was so tempted. I didn't, but I was so tempted. Charlotte and I were ordering a sandwich at Shalotsky's. We're standing there. We're ordering our order, and right behind us are two young college girls. I hope they didn't go to ORU, but there was two young college girls right behind us. One of them got a call on her cell phone, and she said, we're at Shalotsky's, and we're just now finishing our lunch. And I was like, I wanted to turn around and say, you just told a bold-faced lie. They're right behind us getting ready to order. And I told Charlotte later, we were getting our water. I said, did you hear that young girl? I said, she just purposefully lied to whoever called her on the phone for no reason. I mean, that I know of. Ladies, that's the way we offend with our speech. Lying, hurtful joking, sexual overtones, profanity, harsh words, angry words, negative speech criticism, self-boasting, demeaning, saying too much. What does Proverbs say? In a multitude of words, transgression is what? Unavoidable. Ladies, if you talk a lot, I imagine you sin a lot with your mouth. I didn't say it. Jesus said it. Don't lynch me afterwards. I like what Elizabeth Elliot says. If you can't improve on the silence, don't break it. Other ways we stumble with our mouth vocalizing praises to God that are not from our heart. Like tonight when we were singing, was that from your heart or were you just mouthing a bunch of words? Exaggerations. This is an area that my husband and I kept each other accountable on one year because we both noticed it was becoming a very bad habit. I never watch TV or I always go to bed at 9 o'clock. And we were both exaggerating. Slang. Now this might... Step on some of your toes, that's okay. Slang that's not Christ-like. Screwed up, gee whiz, golly gosh, darn. Look these words up in a dictionary. When I was a little girl, I used to get a bar of soap in my mouth for saying those words, and it impressed me so much, I did the same to my children. I put soap in their mouth. You need to look those words up and see what they mean. Gee is Jesus, gosh is God. So when you're saying, oh my, you're saying, oh my God, oh my Jesus. They're euthanisms for God and Jesus. Some of us, I think, not only not to wash our mouth out, but our heart, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, if you're perfect and you don't offend any, and I'm not done. We're going to go next week over some more of those. If you're perfect and you don't offend in any of these areas, then notice what James says. You're perfect and you're able to bridle your whole body. The word perfect in the Greek was used for animals who were full grown, and so it describes a Christian who is mature in character and has reached a goal, not his, but God's. And not only is this person mature, but notice what else James says. He's able to bridle the whole body, just like a man bridles a horse. In fact, to bridle here in the Greek means to lead as with a bridle. It doesn't refer to the actual bridling of the horse, but it actually refers to the leading of the horse to the desired destination in which you want it to go. You know what James is saying? If you can control your tongue, then you can 
bridle or control your whole body. Have you ever thought about that? If you can control your speech, you can control your whole body. Now, ladies, there is a diet plan that is better than Jenny Craig or Weight Watchers. You could package it up and call it the James 3 diet. If you can control your speech, you can control any part of your body. In fact, it's interesting, the Greek word here for able talks about that inner, strong, divine, enabling. You know who that is? The Holy Spirit. It's that inner enabling that says, uh-uh, Susan Joy, you should not say that. That's not a right thing to say. You need to keep your mouth shut. Would Christ say that? And the perfect woman, the mature woman, doesn't do it. She doesn't speak what is in her heart. Well, James gives us two powerful illustrations, the horse without a bit and a ship without a rudder to further illustrate what he wants to say. Notice what he says in verse 3. Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouth that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Now, when James mentions a horse here, a horse was not an animal that was owned by a New Testament reader. It wasn't a, you know, you wouldn't walk around and not a lot of people owned horses. In New Testament times, horses were primarily used for military purposes. So when James is talking about a horse, the readers are probably not thinking, you know, of that slow plow horse, but they're thinking of a prancing war horse, which, by the way, would need more bridling, right? And James says, indeed, you put bits in the horse's mouth. Now, I don't know a lot about horses. I was talking to Dixie the other day after the sermon on Sunday, and I said, what are you going to do with your 75 acres in heaven? And she says, I'm going to put horses on my 75 acres. I mean, I like horses okay, but, you know, I don't know that I'm going to, you know, have an acreage full of horses. But they tell us an average horse weighs between 1 to 2,000 pounds. That's a big animal. And yet they can be controlled with a bit that weighs 2 pounds. So you have this 2,000-pound animal that can be controlled with a two-pound bit. What's the point? The point is this. You put that little tiny bit in the horse's mouth, and you can control him, right? I have gone horseback riding. You can make him go to the right. You can make him go to the left. You can make him turn around and go the other direction. You can make him run. Did you notice in this verse that the horse does not bridle himself, but a man has to bridle it. Ladies, when it comes to our mouth, it is God who fits us with a bridle, right, and leads us in the right path. Ladies, we have to have that power from someone that's stronger than us. That's that inner divine enabling that James mentions in verse 2. We cannot control our tongues on our own part even though we must do our part. And ladies, when God bridles you, he doesn't expect you to act like a horse, okay? That's being led around only because you're being forced to be led around. He expects you to obey because you want to obey, because you want to speak things that are edifying, true, and lovely. He wants you to see the bridle as a benefit. No wonder David says this, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Well, notice what James says next. We put bits in the horse's mouth. What is the reason? So that they will obey us. Ladies, that's the aim in bridling the horse, right? So that the horse will obey, not just his mouth, his whole body. And notice what he says. You can turn around their whole body. You know, a horse is going this way. 
You put the bit in his mouth, you pull on the rein, and you can turn him around, what, the other way. The same it is with your mouth. This evening, your mouth may be full of cursing, bitterness, all kinds of garbage. This evening, if you will let the Lord put that bridle in your mouth, you know what's going to happen? He can turn you around and you can go the other way. What's he talking about? Repentance. You have bad speech, let the Lord bridle your mouth, and you can turn around and go the other way. Ladies, an uncontrolled tongue leads to sin, guilt, and shame. A controlled tongue leads to peace, power, and victory. Well, James turns from the illustration of a horse to now of a ship in verse 4. Notice what he says. Behold, also the ships, even though they are great and they're driven by fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm wherever the pilot wills. Now, James now compares our tongue to a ship. Now, in New Testament times, there were some very large ships, believe it or not. In fact, we know from Acts 27, 37, that there was a ship so large, remember Paul and the ship, the one that was shipwrecked? It carried 276 passengers in addition to the cargo. So that's a pretty big ship. And James says, look at the ships, even though they are so large and they are driven by fierce winds, yet... They can also be turned about with what? A very small helm wherever the pilot wills. Now, ladies, I don't know much about hams, and everywhere I go, I ask people if they would ever give me, uh, be able to find, I've even gotten on the Internet, I have looked. I cannot find out how little a helm is or how much it weighs in comparison to the ship. So if any of you get really bored this week and you want to look up that information for me, I would really appreciate it. But I did find out this. The ancient rudder or the helm was made in the shape of an oar and was connected to the ship's stern, and it is very small in comparison to a big ship or a big boat. And James says the pilot can use that and turn the ship around wherever he wants to take it. You know, I was thinking about us in comparison to what James is saying in verse 4. Ladies, we as humans, we have a lot of loads to carry, right? Kind of like ships. And sometimes the things that come into our life, they're pretty fierce winds, right? Just like those ships. And yet, if you and I would have a good tongue, if we would have a good rudder, we can go through the storms of life unaffected by it. We don't have to give in to the ugliness with our speech. Ladies, our tongue will not help us unless they're committed entirely to Jesus Christ. Now notice both the horse and the ship are turned. Did you notice that? That is significant what James is saying. In fact, he uses this term two times. Why? Both the horse and the ship, they're going in one direction. Both the, the rider of the horse and the pilot of the ship are able to take the bit, the bridle, and the helm, and they do what? They turn around, go the other way. Ladies, both of these are talking about repentance. That's what the Lord wants this evening in your life. If you have a tongue that is not committed to him, he wants to bridle it, and he wants to turn you around the other way.
Well, just as the bit and the rudder are small objects in comparison to the horse and the ship, so is our tongue in comparison to our body. So we turn from the iniquity, the inability to control our tongue, to the iniquities of our tongue, and there's so many that we're going to take two weeks to go over them. Notice in verse 5 what James says, Even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Now, did you know the average tongue is three inches long and one and a half inches wide? Even though my husband says he, ha- I have the biggest tongue that he's ever seen. In fact, when we went to go see Cindy and David and Judah at Christmas, uh, I got in a little bit later than Doug, and I got in the back seat with Judah, and, and Judah said, Blama, let me see your tongue. And I thought, well, that's a strange thing to ask Grandma. And then Doug was in the front seat laughing because he had prompted him to ask Grandma if... And then he said, Grandma, you have a blama, you have a big tongue. But anyway, my husband says, I have the biggest tongue he's ever seen. I'm not going to show it to you. But how little is that tongue, three inches long and one and a half inches wide, in comparison to our bodies? Most of our bodies weigh, not mine, but some of them, between 120 to 200 pounds. That's the average body. That's amazing. Little tiny tongue. And a big body. Even so, the tongue, James says, it's a little tiny member and it boasts great things. It's petite yet powerful, isn't it? It's one of the smallest members of our body, but it's the largest troublemaker, right? James says it boasts great things. Ladies, this is the first iniquity of your tongue. It boasts great things. Do you know your tongue seems to be conscious of its influence? It likes to boast, doesn't it? I'm so great. Yeah, I can do this. Yeah, I did that. David says, my soul shall make her boast in what? The Lord. The Lord. Ladies, we need to let our tongues talk about the greatness of our God and not ourselves. James goes on to say, see how great a forest, a little fire kindles. Wow, he says. In fact, the readers would know exactly what he was talking about because during the long dry weather, the terrain of Palestine was known to produce forest fires. James says, wow, behold how great a matter. Just a little fire kindles. Now, ladies, we might not be able to, st- to understand this, but if you've ever studied history, most of you know about the great Chicago fire. Have anybody ever read that in school? Started in 1871. Do you remember how it was started? By a cow that kicked over a lantern. You know, in 1871, the destruction was placed at $2 million. That's a lot in 1871. You thought, think, well, that was history. Well, have you ever seen the damage caused by a cigarette being thrown out the window? I mean, sometimes in the summertime, we watch the television and we see the destruction in California of fires, and we find out it was somebody that threw a careless cigarette out the window or a campfire that had been left to smolder. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. Ladies, so is the potential for your tongue to destroy. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindles. Do you know your tongue can set your neighborhood on fire? Did you know your tongue can set this church on fire? We've been in churches where that's happened. Do you know your tongue can set your marriage on fire? 
your school on fire? Did you know you can ruin someone's entire life by the power of your tongue? In fact, they tell us that 10 minutes of unbridled temper can waste enough strength to do wholesome work for half a day. I think some of us need to bridle our tongues and get busy cleaning our houses, right? Ladies, our physical energy is a gift from God. What a sin to waste it on idle words. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. In fact, they also tell us that a physical doctor, a physician, do you know they can tell a lot about how you're doing physically by what? What do they say? One of the first things they do, stick out your tongue. Why do they do that? They can see if you're healthy or not. I think it is the same way with our spiritual physician. Susan, stick out your tongue. I want to see what kind of what kind of spiritual condition you're in. And ladies, I'm afraid many times our heavenly physician sees what Paul tells our spiritual condition to be like in Romans 3, full of deadly poison, the poison of asps under our lips. Ladies, all three of these examples James gives, the horse, the ship, and the tongue, are destroyed when left to themselves without someone to control them. The ship needs a pilot, the horse needs a rider, and the tongue needs a savior. Well, just in case you didn't get the message, James goes on to say in verse 6, And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. You might say, well, what is he talking about here? Well, to speak of the tongue as a fire was to use an Old Testament concept from Proverbs. Listen to this. An ungodly man digs up evil, and it is on his lips like a burning fire. In fact, James uses fire as a metaphor to describe the tongue's destructive nature. If it is left uncontrolled, it is like a deadly fire. And not only that, but notice what else he calls it. A world of iniquity. You might say, well, what is that? Well, the word, the word world here is viewed as the present world system. Your tongue is a system of iniquity, a system of evil. This present world that we live in this evening, whether you want to believe it or not, I believe it more and more the older I get. It is in opposition to God, right? This world is in opposition to God, and who is it responsive to? Satan. You know what James is saying? Your tongue is unjust, and it's unrighteous in character. And as fallen man, you show yourself to be part of this evil world system by using your tongue to express all the evil that is in your heart and in your mind. Ladies, the good and sanctified tongue will condemn unrighteousness, but the evil tongue will compliment it, flatter it, make it appear righteous. Well, James goes on to say, so is the tongue among our members. It defiles the whole body. Isn't it interesting that a controlled tongue, what? Subdues the whole body, controls the body, but what? An undefiled tongue, what? Defiles the whole body. In fact, this word means to pollute it like a moral cancer. Ladies, just like physical cancer, the tongue can influence all the members of our body and defile all of its actions. Yuck. That is disgusting. An unbridled tongue will disable us from controlling our passions. A filthy tongue makes a filthy person. 
Well, James goes on to say it also sets on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire of hell. You might say, wow, these are strong words. Yes, they are. You might say, what does this mean? Set on fire the course of nature? Well, it's interesting here. The Greek here is talking about a wheel of life that is set at motion at the time that you were born. Did you know that? At the time that you were born, your life starts, right? And it starts like a wheel. And so it's constantly turning. And so for a person who has a, a tongue that is out of control, that wheel just keeps going faster and faster, and they never control their tongue, and it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse and faster and faster. And all of a sudden, it just starts spitting fire in all directions, and they don't realize that what? They're heading for destruction. Nothing's ever going to bother me. I can keep using my tongue however I want to. This woman does not stop to realize she will have to bear consequences of her evil tongue. The more it burns, the faster it spins until the whole wheel erupts in a blaze, spitting fire in all directions. And that's why James goes on to say it is set on fire of hell. Ladies, the tongue is only a fuse. The source of the deadly fire is hell. In fact, it's interesting. The term for hell here is Gehenna. This was a literal place known to the Jews. This is a place where they would burn their children. They would offer their children up to the god Moloch. They would burn trash. They would burn all kinds of putrefying things. In fact, it reminds me of when Miriam and I were in India and we smelled that, that stench burning every day. And when I came to this passage, I thought, this must be what this is talking about. In fact, Randall told me Sunday, he said, you will never forget that smell because he's been to Burma, Myanmar, where they do the same thing. And so Gehenna became a, a synonym for hell because it, was, it would speak about the fire that never went out. It just burned day and night and day and night. And so it was, it was symbolic of hell, which we know, well, what? It's a lake of fire that never goes out. Ladies, the idea is that here is that with that which causes the tongue to do so much evil derives its origin from what? Hell. Nothing can better characterize much of what the tongue does than to say that it has its origin in hell and it possesses what? The spirit that reigns there, which is who? Satan. Didn't Jesus say in John eight forty four, you're of your father, the devil. When he speaks a lie, he speaks his own for he is a liar and he is the father of it. We also know from Genesis 3, 1 that Satan is behind all evil speech. All evil talk has its beginning at hell, and it can cause your whole body to burn in hell if you don't control it. Ladies, the fire that we start with our tongues has been borrowed from hell, and it could lead us there if left uncontrolled. In fact, in Matthew 5, Jesus says it would be better that one of your members be cut off than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Maybe some of us it would be wise to cut our tongues out. Well, I know these are strong words from this little book, and it should cause us all to think twice before using our tongues for evil purposes. And we're not finished. We have one more chapter, one more lesson next week. Our tongue is dangerous when left uncontrolled. Ladies, the test of how you control your tongue is another, another test to see if you are in the faith. That's why James says in verse 3, a controlled tongue is a mark of a what? A mature woman, one whose faith is genuine. 
If I could say this evening this to you, if your speech is no better tonight than it was a year ago, something's not right. James has already told us in James 1.26, if anyone among us seems to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, his religion is what? It's vain. It's dead. Ladies, a sign of Christian maturity is not simply how much of the Bible you know, how many sermons you've read, how many theological books you know, how many books of the Bible you've memorized, or even how many years you've been saved. A sign of Christian maturity is controlling your tongue and keeping it from complaining, fault-finding, backbiting, slandering, gossiping, lying, exaggerating, cursing, and etc. It is said that in an old English churchyard is the headstone of a woman who died on May 24th, and it said this, Beneath the stone a lump of clay lies Arabella Young, who on the 24th of May began to hold her tongue. Ladies, is that what would be inscribed on your tombstone if you should die tonight? I hope not. They tell us that we speak 18 to 20,000 words a day. 18 to 20,000 words a day. And we spend 20% of our life talking. Do you know what that means? In one year's time, last year in 2009, you wrote 66 800-page books with your words. 66 800, that's a big book. 66 800-page books were written by the words that you said in 2009. Now, ladies, if we were to read those books, what would they say? Have you stopped lately to examine what you are saying with your eighteen to 20,000 words every day? But perhaps a more important question is this. Will you be justified by those eighteen to 20,000 words on that day, or will you be condemned? Let's pray together.